You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. My guest is uh, Dr. Theodore Pilisek. Uh, he's going to be a speaker at a, an event called MedTech coming this December 2019. And uh, Dr. Pilisek, he's the founder and medical director of the Advanced Health and Wellness Center in Houston, Texas. He has over 30 years international experience in preventative medicine on three different continents. And his practice is dedicated to functional longevity medicine and clinical nutrition and the prevention and reversal of generalized vascular, metabolic, and degenerative disease. So he's got a lot more background than that, but uh, we'll keep it brief. And uh, Ted, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, and uh, we spoke offline briefly, but your current focus or your focus uh, is anti-aging, is that right, or improving longevity? You could, uh, absolutely, but there are different ways of approaching it, certainly. Uh, my One of my main interests is the nutrigenomics, which is the effect of food on our genetic expression. Um, and that is so important because a lot of our patients want to know uh, at a younger and younger age, are they at risk for any serious medical problems? And by evaluating their uh, genome, their genomic expressions, we can give them a good idea of the risks that are involved and the manner in which one could delay or even uh, prevent that happening. Um, when you say that uh, food affects our genetic expression, are you talking about epigenetic changes due to food? Correct. Or... Okay. The epigenomic expressions, absolutely, which we're finding are so important. And the epigenomic uh, effects include lifestyle, uh, exercise style, and nutrition style at the individual. Do you know of any work that's going on to characterize which epigenetic changes are heritable, pass along up to the next generation? Well, I think we do. Uh, Harvard is doing a study at the moment, and uh, I believe so is Stanford. Um, and the, uh, they're trying to be, become more specific as time goes on because uh, we are now you know, developing um, much more involved and uh, extended manner of, uh, of assessing one's uh, genome uh, by looking at the uh, uh, DNA uh, but going much more uh, wider, you could say, looking at the whole exome uh, of, a, of a genome, um, sequencing. So as a result, uh, this boosts the scientific strength of the, and the sensitivity and also the uh, predictive value compared to any of the first-generation uh, analyses of our uh, of our genomic interpretation. So there's a lot of very important 
um, uh, research going on now with very much with practical solutions. That's the beauty of it, because you can't keep everything in an ivory tower. You've got to bring it down to the level of the man and, and woman in the street, so to speak. And that's yeah. where I come in as a, as a practicing uh, clinician. Hmm. Um, so what have you noticed in terms of nutrition, how it affects people's gene expression? Well, uh, how is, would you yes. even ascertain that? Okay, we now know practically through experience with different populations around the world who have healthy longevity on their side, such as the Okinawan Islanders in uh, south of the main uh, islands of Japan, the northern uh, Scandinavian countries, and the Nordics in uh, Sweden and Finland, um, the Mediterranean peoples of specifically Sardinia and the Greek islands, and also some populations in Central, Central America, uh, and also our own population in Loma Linda, California, by looking at their uh, lifestyles, nutrition styles, and as a result, correlating those with actual biochemical testing. So we have learned quite a lot by, by looking at these people, these populations, seeing the sort of biomarkers that they, in fact, elucidate and show in the testing that we do through blood, uh, sometimes saliva, and, uh, and urine. So as a result of that, we have then been able to suggest certain nutritional uh, style, um, uh, eating, eating styles or eating uh, habits. Now, however, by looking at the genome of individuals, we can further um, d delineate the risks that an individual has. And where it's very appropriate to my research, clinical research, is in trying to assess the risks for, um, in fact, dementia, because that is the biggest risk that most of the Western world populations have uh, in that Take the United States as an example, the UK, Germany, Italy, France. Um, we are one of the have the one of the worst populations regarding the risk for diabetes and pre-diabetes. We almost have 50% of the population at the moment who, in fact, um, are at risk for that diabetes uh, type two. And the and the problem with that is that type two diabetes puts in a risk for type 3 diabetes, which is actually Alzheimer's disease, mm. tremendously. So that is the new nickname for Alzheimer's, type 3 diabetes. So there. So, uh, yes. A question here. What, you, you alluded to biomarkers that you're tracking, you know, at least yeah. in, I guess, your local population clinically. What are yeah. some of the biomarkers and what's the implication of them being at certain well, levels? Absolutely. We look at oxidative stress because... Oxidation is one of the major problems that we deal with, too much oxidation. We look at inflammation as another major marker. Uh, so when you look at that, from the point of view possibly of inflammation, you have C-reactive protein as a, as a well-known one. Fibrinogen is another well-known one. Oxidized LDL is another one that is a, a, a really good marker for that. And then that's in the, in the blood, you might say. Those are very good markers for inflammatory, possible inflammatory changes. Um, then we, when we look at the genetics, we look at APOE genotype, which is a, 
one of the uh, very important, in fact, genes, which, in fact, directs us. Initially, it was discovered, the APOE genotype, where you have APOE 2, 3, and 4, and depending on the uh, actual phenotype presentation of the patient, whether there are 2, 2, 2, 3, 2, 4, uh, or 3, 3, and 4, 4, the risk of cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's changes. So the worst one for Alzheimer's, the worst type combination is a 3-4 and a 4-4, APOE3, APOE4. Uh, if one has that, then your risk for Alzheimer's is certainly greater. So now we know that by instituting certain dietary habits, which we know will lower our uh, biomarkers for biochemical biomarkers for inflammation, we can slow down the progression of uh, of the dementia, and we can pinpoint that by looking at, in fact, brain imaging. So brain imaging comes into the picture too. So we can see if there's any. This is the latest finding of whether there's any signs of atrophy of certain parts of the brain which are linked specifically to the development of dementia. May, oftentimes, the temporal lobe, bilateral temporal lobes, can now be measured through uh, sophisticated um, algorithms, uh, software using MRIs, where we can see what uh, the degree of atrophy that is present and the rate at which it progresses. So these are some of the uh, new developments that we find, in, just as an example, in the development of dementia, which is one of the biggest threats in our current population. And uh, in fact, this is the one, one reason why I'm focusing on that. It's because it's going to be a very costly one for the whole country. Is your goal more to uh, determine risk factors? Or is it it's a to, combination. Uh, yeah, I guess the other goal would be is if you modulate people's nutrition clinically, what happens to the biomarkers that can change because of that? Oh, they, they change. They can change so quickly. But you have other lifestyle changes. Exercise. We now know that a modicum of exercise, not necessarily to kill you, but a modicum of exercise, uh, of uh, aerobic exercise, generally speaking, which is really just a question of just walking enough. If you can get somebody to walk enough once they're past the age of 40, you can slow down the progression of dementia. Uh, they've done quite a number of studies on this too. Uh, adequate sleep is another very important biomarker. We're finding that you could have too little sleep. And for most of us, because of the stressful lives that we have and the multitasking that we subject our bodies and minds to, which they're not made for, then we add extra stress to our bodies. So adding all those um, risk factors uh, for many, many years will then result in an increased risk for uh, dementia degree. Absolutely. So what have you seen of the uh, the biggest levers in terms of nutrition, exercise, other lifestyle habits? Well, you know, maybe rela uh, relationships with people, you know, instead of being isolated, what, what moves uh, the needle most? Well, it's a, it's always it's it's a multifactorial as I as I as I put it because just just to give you an idea, we now think that the if you take a snapshot of the genetics of Alzheimer's, you've got a, at least probably thirty different genetic abnormalities that could be called into play, but some of them are more important than others. For instance, you've got the uh, AP gene, which is the amyloid precursor protein. You've got the presettlin 1 and 2 genes, and then you've got the APOE, apolipoprotein E genotype. Those are the major ones 
involved. But then there's a slew of other risk loci, as they call them, or functional um, membranes or functional points on one's chromosomes, which also lead to uh, the, the, the increased risk for, for Alzheimer's, you see. So therefore, when you go back to foods, let me give you an, an example. Uh, they've just completed a, a very, very useful study, uh, a group out of Rush University here in the United States, where they compared the Mediterranean diet with the American uh, uh, Heart Association, the DASH diet. Uh, the, the DASH diet has been around for many years. The idea is to, the, the, by utilizing this diet, you lower your risk for hypertension, okay? Mm. Now, if you lower your risk for hypertension, specifically of the systolic, the upper limit of the blood pressure and the diastolic, to do that adequately, you have to maintain, a, uh, in fact, the suppleness of your arterial tree throughout life. And up to about uh, the last 10 years or so, we thought, Clinically, that as you get older, you in fact your arteries get uh, more solid. They get harder. They can't. They can't. They don't. They lose their suppleness, so they can't dilate and relax adequately. That is not true because we found that different populations, especially long-lived ones, maintain their the the uh, the suppleness of their arteries till they die. That's one of the the, the answers to. Uh, the question of aging. You do get older, but you don't age. You remain young until you, you actually uh, call to see your maker. Uh, and one of the reasons you, you're called to see your maker is when, you're <laughs> when your ability to transform your cells uh, disappears. Uh, that takes uh, so many different cellular divisions. We don't want to get too complicated there. So to maintain that, the DASH diet has been a very, very useful addendum. They've combined it, the Rush uh, people did, with a modified Mediterranean diet. So then they came up with what they called the MIND diet, which is an amalgam of the Mediterranean and the DASH diet from the American Heart Association. And the, the goal of that is to emulate the Mediterranean peoples, because a lot of us could have the sort of dietary modifications Mediterraneans employ. It's much more easier for us sometimes than even the uh, Japanese diet, Okinawan diet, or even some of the Nordic diets where they eat whale meat and stuff like that. We're not used to that, but for the most part, we're used to Mediterranean dietary intake, okay? Now, there's also what is the important aspect of the Mediterranean diet? Ah, and that's very, very critical because that is olive oil. They, the, the ones who live longest, who partake of the Mediterranean diet, in fact, are the ones who can put away, possibly the individuals, up to eight tablespoons of olive oil a day. Hydroxytyrosol is the molecular component there, which one feels is the major antioxidant, that polyphenol, that helps our genes remain young. So this is how, you know, our discovery is sort of expanded. By, the, by every year, we're finding something new. So this is something that I've got most of my patients. I'm advising them on that and, uh, and see I'm practicing myself too um, to see how that affects my um, biomarkers, my biochemical biomarkers. Some, some of the studies, you know, that incorporate MRIs of the brain, et cetera, are a bit expensive. And, you know, you have to be in a research sort of group. Uh, otherwise, you can't afford them. Uh, so usually we just stick to the... Uh, the simple matter of uh, of assessing uh, 
biomarker productivity. Have you uh, looked into uh, how the how our microbiome affects us and alters Absolutely. our gene expression and how that partners with uh, our nutrition and exercise? Oh, yes, because that's the other brain. It's now called the other brain. Uh, it interacts, the microbiome interacts with our cerebrum or the main brain through the vagus system, uh, partly through the vagus system. And we've known that for years, but we couldn't put the two together. But now we're finding, uh, again, because of genetics, we have more bacteria, beneficial bacteria in our gastrointestinal tract, especially in the large intestine, than we have cells in our body. Uh, so for a start, so the, the genetic makeup of the bacteria is of very, very great importance. So there must be a balance maintained at all times. And traditionally, we used to think, well, if, if you have GERD, you may not you have an imbalance, okay, that's the upper GI. If you've got uh, alternating bouts of diarrhea, constipation, bloating, etc., then that might be a sign of imbalance in the lower uh, gastrointestinal tract. But now we realize that everything is linked together. So the importance is to maintain a balance of your bacteria in your gastrointestinal tract through, and this is very, very important, probiotics and prebiotics. And we can make our own probiotics and prebiotics by ingesting the right foods. Usually they, they tend to be, if possible, uh, fermented foods. So that's why ferment, fermented products are very, very useful to our gastrointestinal tract and our microbiome. I, yeah, I guess if you need an example of those. Oh, yeah, I guess like sauerkraut, kefir, yogurt, kombucha. Yogurt, kefir, absolutely, for the, especially the mornings, the, 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 the sauerkraut, the kombucha, uh, the, uh, you know, kimchi, that type of thing, but also olives, any of the pickles. They're very good if you could watch the salt because you don't want to push your blood pressure up. But yes, that's a critical factor now of having fermented foods on a daily basis. Oh, well, it's weird if you think about it. Everything we eat becomes fermented by our gut bacteria anyway. So our well, guts are like, a, like a, a bit slow, a bit slow. Right, sometimes. right, 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 right. Yeah. So but I mean, yes, that's why I, right. I can see it would be an assist to eat something that's already been fermented, and then it's further fermented once we eat it as well. Absolutely. And you, you know yourself when you eat the food, the right foods, uh, you don't feel over full, overstuffed afterwards, even though you're no, not hungry anymore. Uh, so that's, that's rather interesting. Although there's, there's now a, you might say, type of a trend, there are always trends in nutrition of uh, looking at, uh, because of the diabetic epidemic, to try and, just, and uh, allow us to modify the foods uh, and the time of eating. So we talk about episodic fasting. And I think that is a worthwhile approach depending on the individual and what their health problems are when they come to certainly. What, um, what tends to consume your mind, your mind every day? You know, what, what things are you trying to figure out that you tend to ruminate about a lot that are really puzzling you personally? Well, um, what I'm it's, it is nutritionally related. We're learning things about nutrition virtually every day. And one of the um, striking findings is the advantage of taking micronutrients. We touched on that. Whole foods are important, but whole foods cannot practically provide you with enough micronutrients, such as 
B vit- water-soluble vitamins, which for the most part are B vitamins, fat-soluble vitamins, are usually vitamins A, D, E, and K. Antioxidants are also important, uh, glutathione, etc., uh, which is vitamin C, which can act as a, as both as a water-soluble vitamin and an antioxidant. And we now know that amino acids are important because we are one big protein. So you want to have the right uh, building blocks for our protein and the ones that we make. So these micronutrients, as we call them, are very important because we have changed our uh, living sort of approach. We are now doing so much more, partially because of the advances of technology, um, that we ever did in the past, from parents or grandparents did, and that places great stresses on us. So to counteract those stresses, we need more micronutrients. And I've found that I've had very good success by, in fact, by assessing micronutrient status in individuals and then trying to supplement those with intravenous uh, vitamins and micronutrients with very, very good effect. Is it, uh, you know, I've had many markers tested at, at labs, but uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the tests for micronutrients, first of all, what are, you know, what are five or 10 micronutrients you found to be important? And then how do you find testing for it? Is it rare or is it pretty commonplace to find that stuff? Oh, no, you can do it. Uh, you could look at, uh, look at the uh, water-soluble vitamins. You've got B12, you've got folate, and you've got uh, B1, B2, B3, uh, the standard ones. Uh, biotin, you could do this all through the blood. Fat-soluble, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin K, uh, no problem with that. Vitamin E through the blood. And uh, so it's glutathione we can check through the blood as well. We can check all most, most of the vitamins and the amino acids too. Uh, ones associated like serine, uh, phosphatidylserine is, is uh, readily available, ethanolamine. So we have a lot, and also fatty acids. We're now very cognizant of the fact that our brain, especially, uh, is a three-pound, the average brain weighs about three pounds, of a quivering fat composed of um, uh, EPA, long-chain fatty acids, EPA, DHA, and DPA. That's abbreviations for the for dicosahexaenoic acid, eicosapentaenoic acid, and so forth. So therefore, we're finding that we to be able to maintain that uh, that quivering brain and not let it atrophy by supplying it with enough of the basic fatty acids, then you've got to eat the right foods. Okay, the right foods are actually mostly fish related, fish related such as the small fish. So that would be what? Anchovies, sardines, mackerel, uh, herring. Then you come to the bigger fish, larger fish like salmon. Uh, but the trouble is when the fish attains a size of about 10 inches to 12 inches, and we've seen the beautiful shots of the salmon going to spawn up the rivers in Alaska and the, the, the bears waiting to catch them and eat them. The trouble with the with bigger fish, they can't survive on plankton and seaweed like the smaller ones do. So they tend to accumulate their impurities. So you, you probably should concentrate on the small fish or otherwise, if you can't abide that fishy taste, then you should uh, take uh, pro- probably micronutrients with 
the EPA and the DHA and the DPA derived from those fish. Absolutely. But yeah, that so is all excellent the, uh, for the braid. Okay. All the dietary okay. recommendations you're giving, I, they, they all sound very familiar when I speak to uh, you know, my dad or, or older people. You know, yes. they would eat pickled this and pickled that and fermented this and that and uh, you know Absolutely. all that stuff that people a lot of people turn their nose up at this kind of stuff, but a lot of it's very familiar. So that makes Well sense. it is because tradition. You know, we have to learn from tradition. <clears throat> uh, tradition teaches us a lot because it's usually the people who have practiced that type of lifestyle who live longest. <laughs> so so and uh, you know, despite any other morbidities that they acquire, <clears throat> but they live longest. And the important thing, again, is to preserve your brain. So that is my focus for all my patients. Anybody over the age of 45, I'm, I'm in fact inclined to put them on this mind diet or modification of the mind diet that they could abide by and practice on a regular basis. And that certainly will, I mean, improve them over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years because we are now looking at uh, the age of 100 as not being that far away on an average. We're here about 87, 85, uh, and in certain, that's in the United States. <clears throat> We've gone just past, I believe, 80. Although some people say, well, it's still 78, 79. No, it's, it's mm. definitely past 80. But uh, the Nordic people, like I said, the Sardinians and also the uh, Okinawans, they're, they're hitting in the 90s. Absolutely. But uh, one of the other factors is exercise, too. You can't get away so, from that. You can't be sedentary. Yeah, yeah. So what have you seen in clinic? What kind of, um, you know, in, your, in the patient population that you work with? Well, uh, because, Is it pretty dramatic, yeah. or what, what do you see? You mean the changes? Yeah, when, when they go on the right diet and exercise Absolutely. plan. Absolutely. It's a dramatic change in their biochemistry. Absolutely. We can uh, stop and reverse diabetes, uh, but they, it's, you know, depending on the degree of diabetes that somebody has, diabetes type 2, when they come and see me. But yes, we first of all halt its progression and then carry on and start reversing it. Absolutely. <clears throat> you, mentioned, uh, Sorry. You, mentioned, you mentioned Alzheimer's and dementia quite a bit. So it sounds yes. like it's very important to you, which is which is good. It is important. It's the most important threat facing the Western world at the moment. Absolutely. Well, my my question here, though, is I've heard of, of many practitioners, thankfully, having a great impact on diabetes. But what about Alzheimer's and dementia? Do you have patients where you've been able to help them and their families do a dietary and an exercise intervention? And has it had much effect? Or is it at that point apparently uh, not much can happen to change the person's outcome. Well, it depends on how far they are by the time they come to see me. You see, I'm in the group associated with uh, the likes of uh, A4M, and we've been preaching this gospel of a holistic approach to medicine for many years. Uh, but, the, you know, the standardized medical approach has has never focused on that. In fact, most physicians know diddly squat about nutrition, which this is changing. They now have programs for uh, residents and fellows where they are actively teaching nutrition, clinical nutrition, which is, thank goodness, we've, we've got to that stage. But for the most part, the old school don't know. In fact, for instance, if you, if you have a patient who's been diagnosed with cancer, they have to have uh, either... A, IV therapy or, uh, or radiation, whenever you mention anything 
for instance, regarding nutrition, they just shrug their shoulders and they say, no, uh, just regular food. And you, you ask them what is regular food and the food that they talk about is actually the, the, the worst type of advice they could give because what happens when you get onto that anti-cancer treatment, many times it depletes the body of all the basic necessary micronutrients. They, they need a lot of micronutrients. This is one of the problems that we deal with uh, at the moment, but things are definitely changing, definitely changing. So have, I'm, have I'm you, gung-ho about that. Yeah. Have you seen, I mean, again, when people have Alzheimer's or dementia, Yes. Is that typically too late? Have you seen dramatic changes at that point no, or I have only not. subtle ones? I have not. Uh, I have not. Uh, well, maybe one or two pre-pre-dementia patients, yes. Uh, but sometimes at that early stage of uh, uh, neurocognitive uh, deficiency or failure, one can't be sure what you're looking at, whether it's, for instance, Alzheimer's or is it Parkinson's. Uh, or is it Lewy body dementia, different types of dementia. Uh, the mo but the most important thing is to be able to prevent, from my point of view, the uh, cerebral atrophy, because that's, that's a common finding that we, we have in those patients. So to prevent that, they must get adequate sleep, uh, do some do exercise, have the right any micronutrient deficiencies that we document must be re uh, replenished. So those are the sort of aspects of health that you address. And certainly, um, I've seen early changes, early changes at the moment, certainly, a positive change from the point of view. We have tests, excuse me, written tests, and you can see whether somebody's uh, different uh, screening tests for uh, dementia. Uh, so... The changes are a little subtle, especially the earlier that you meet that individual. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's difficult for, for us to refer them for uh, screening, uh, MRI screening, specifically to check the, uh, uh, the question of brain atrophy, because then you've got to do a serial study. That, that could get very expensive because insurances are, are loath to, co to cover that. So those so, are the sort of negative aspects of all this. So what advances are you, are you uh, expecting or hoping that will happen in the next maybe four or five years? Okay, the most important are going to be, uh, is going to be the, the, uh, the possibility of, of focusing on, on good nutrition. Now, having said that, as a, as a clinician and fellow clinicians like myself, one fight that we have is with the media. Media is influenced by companies, by big uh, agriculture, uh, the food industry, their ads are so potent, especially to the relatively young people that, uh, and uh, a lot of them, in fact, have a focus on fast food. So unfortunately, the basis of fast food production is completely contrary to the sort of recommendations that one has for optimal uh, nutrition. That's the only problem that I see. So sometimes, and I think what would help the nation as a whole, and this is being experimented with in the Scandinavian countries, that certain types of ads are being uh, checked out by the government. And if they promise really too much, then they should be curtailed because that is, you get a lot of misinformation uh, posted uh, through the media, unfortunately. Very good.
So <clears throat> we're just about out of time. What's the best way for people to find out more? And if they're local to you, maybe come see you in the clinic or at least uh, you know, look into what you're doing specifically. How can they find out more? Oh, yes. Now, we have a website that we have an email address, info at advancedhealthandwellness.com. And the website itself is advancedhealthandwellness.com? Yes, sir. Yes, okay. it is. Very good. Well, Ted, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, no, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And uh, let's see what uh, how you could uh, edit it and let me know. And uh, hopefully it will be a positive product. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.